going home is always a unique experience. The people who love you gather around to remember, to reattach you to the family by using old stories in order to create a link to the new community. Yet, when someone tells your story, you realize that you've been typecast, trapped, framed in an old narrative which may not represent who you've become. This has been my experience, at least. It's like I'm fighting with a beta version of myself and I'm waiting for it to update with the family. However, as long as someone else is telling the story, it is difficult to adjust the narrative. This has been the struggle for women in Christianity since the beginning. The struggle to name and to know is most keenly felt by Eve as the new community used her story to define women's roles, then later as a tool against the second Eve, Mary. Dr. Susan Harvey notes, as images, Eve and Mary have polarized women in their lives into awesome extremes. Worse yet, they have successfully affected the polarization in secular as well as religious life. In our own times, no less than in earlier days, the temptress and the great mother serve as archetypes which do more to reduce women's experiences and capacities than to illuminate them. Forcing women into a false dichotomy means the death of their experience is erased. As the women are looking into the icons of Eve and Mary, Eve is moved from mother of all living to a functional tool. And this is witnessed in the Christian tradition's use of her story to consolidate power underneath men. In 1 Timothy 2.11, the author says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. In a moment, we're going to enter into the text of Genesis where we will witness how 1 Timothy purposely misread Eve's story in order to subordinate the daughters of Eve around him. Following 1 Timothy's lead, the age of the church fathers exploited Eve's story even further. Tertullian crystallized the early church's treatment of women through Eve in the early third century, calling her the devil's gateway and identifying her with every woman Eve became the temptress, the destroyer of creation. Thus arrayed, she validated and justified a view of women that the Christian message in its simplicity would have undermined. As we see in this version of the story, Eve and therefore women do not have agency, rather they are flexibly adapted to the needs of patriarchy. Quoting Judith Butler, she says, women are written in the negative, they are whatever man is not, or whatever men need at the time. Now, if you're thinking, that's why I walked away from religion, or that is why I hate the Bible, it is completely understandable. But give me a moment to be able to listen to the women who have dedicated their lives in order to give Eve a second chance to share her wisdom. She has been framed by patriarchal voices, by men saying what her story can mean. But if we can listen to Catherine Keller, a daughter of Eve, we are offered a way towards wisdom in the Genesis account. She says, while critically engaging history and scripture to begin a project of constructive theology, I want us to hear into its own speech the muted utterance of the next verse, the verse of chaos. A theology of becoming can hardly go back to the Bible 
competing for the changeless authority of origin. It may, however, solicit the chaotic multiplicity of biblical writings, genres, voices, and potentials to create new endings because the Bible knows only of the divine formation of the world out of the chaotic something, not creation out of nothing. Therefore, recognizing that it is always a creating from something, in this case, is out of our received tradition. Let us return to her story, written within the order of patriarchy, to find the subversive notes the scribes who added a touch of chaos brought to life. But first, a note about Eve's true name, Lady Wisdom. Proverbs 3.18 says, Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. And in Proverbs 31, it says, She is clothed with strength and dignity. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. We can see that the story of Eve about the woman who took fruit from a tree is a story of wisdom in the pursuit of life. And so if we listen closely, we will hear that she is clothed with strength and dignity. Entering into the text in Genesis 2, 2.18 says, It is not good for the human to be alone. And this is a shocking announcement because it follows five counts of God declaring it is good, ending with a Sabbath to enjoy what he has done. Then a final declaration as God surveys all that he's created, looks, resting, and says it is very good. But what is good? It is good is a statement of purpose, of ability. It could be translated, it is ready for life. So when God says it is not good, it is God recognized that Adam alone is not ready to engage life. God follows in 2.18 saying, I shall make him a sustainer beside him. Normally you might hear the word here, helpmate or partner. But as Robert Alter points out, that help is too weak because it suggests a mere auxiliary function. Whereas the term being translated elsewhere connotes active intervention on behalf of someone especially in a military context as often it is in Psalms. So the 14 uses of sustainer are all references of a stronger one rescuing, most of the time speaking of God, which means this epithet, this naming that God does for Eve, is God seeing the unbridled strength of the woman to come. Keeping in line with all of Genesis, the second born, the second created carries the future hope. Adam sees and celebrates Eve, saying, because of this, a man will leave father and mother to cling to his wife, becoming one. This announcement foreshadows what is to come. Now that there is the possibility of tov, the possibility of good, where life can be lived, they will have to leave their origin, Eden, to continue. Dr. Susan Harvey shows us Eve's pronounced effect upon Adam. God takes some dust breathes into it the breath of life, and creates in the Hebrew, Adam, or humanity. When God sees that humanity experiences itself as alone, he creates woman. In Hebrew, the specific term is Isha. Suddenly with her appearance, Adam becomes a man. In Hebrew, the specific term is Ish. So when Adam sees Eve and cries, that at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he is celebrating the completion of human creation, his own as well as Eve's. In the differentiation of humankind into persons, female and male, a wholeness, a perfection is found. There is nothing here of subordination. 
each part of humanity had been contained in the whole, in the Adam. Each found itself in fullness in the encounter with the other. Adam became a man only when Eve becomes a woman. Her creation is also his creation. And then the newly created, those without any life to draw wisdom from, are now left by themselves to wander the garden. In experiencing each other as mutually created, it says that they were naked and unashamed while being watched by a cunning serpent. Naked and cunning are the same words separated by a single vowel, setting up irony within the story. The irony of a caring God who leaves the naive creation being watched by a figure skilled in deception. Entering chapter three, Eve is the primary voice while the serpent speaks with plural pronouns that hints at us that Adam is standing passively by Eve because she is the sustainer, the one who rescues. And it's noted by Spicer that when the snake speaks, it is better understood as the beginning of a false statement. So Eve isn't waiting for the end of the question. She abruptly interjects and says, you must not eat and you must not touch the forbidden fruit. Now God had told Adam alone that you must not eat but we do not know where the expansion comes from. Most assume Eve and blame her. But since Adam standing near doesn't correct, I think it was Adam, the one who never thinks for himself. He simply expands the prohibition. And we can even see this characteristic when God shows up and he says, Adam, where are you? And they are hiding and coming out. So what has happened? Adam blames while Eve speaks plainly. Adam lets go of any responsibility for her actions. The woman you gave me, she gave me from the tree I just ate. The same Adam who named all the animals with God, the Adam who spent an undisclosed amount of time with God looking for a partner. Adam, the one in charge, because when God comes on the scene, it says that he called to the man, where are you? Adam, who shows when conflicts arise, those in power whose apathy and silence drove the conflict that we're in, will finally speak in order to find a scapegoat. Eve, in contrast, owns her world. She could have spoken against Adam, pointed to his lack, to his silence, but she owned her own pursuit of wisdom. Standing before God, she said, I was deceived and I acted. Here we witness her strength, even before God, to become the sustainer, the strong protector. Which brings us to the final chapter of Eve's story, the curse. Throughout Genesis, the second, as I said, is preferred to the first. It wasn't Ishmael, but Isaac. It wasn't Esau, but Jacob. It wasn't Judah, but Joseph. And it all began in the Garden of Eden. Adam is made first but it is Eve who carries the same name as God. Adam was first, but Eve is the one standing in strength, contradicting the snake, weighing the worth of the words, and owning rather than deflecting her own actions. Notice, even the curse of death they are facing will be held at bay through the painful struggle of Eve, who is rightly named the mother of all living. The preference is seen in God's hope that they will overcome the serpent, because the Lord God said, I will put enmity between you 
and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Her seed will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The one named Sustainer, who is not directly spoken to because deity speaks to man, holds the promise of tomorrow's liberation. Telling the story before the patriarchs begin, before she gives birth or has sex, points to the possibility of change coming through her inclusion, through embracing the wisdom of Eve to see, consider, weigh, and to act. After facing a serpent, standing before God and having their first fight, the story ends in irony, forcing us to reflect. Eve, sitting under the curse of death, celebrates life with the help of the Lord. She says, I have brought forth my first son. Then we notice that those made in the image of God, which was a reason to celebrate, are now exiled because they have become like God, knowing good and evil. Discerning between good and evil is the Hebrew Bible's way of speaking about obtaining wisdom. Those made in the image of God are banished for being able to start discerning. Let us return to her story written within the order of patriarchy. To fulfill God's call to be fruitful and multiply was impossible before the fruit. Dr. Carolyn Sharp notes that Genesis 1-4 yields an ironic insight. The desire for knowledge is what creates the necessary differentiation that shapes human culture, including human response to the divine for good and ill. Adam and Eve do not procreate until they have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gain wisdom to perceive the differences. Commentators have long suggested that humankind would not have spread over the whole earth if the fruit of the tree had not opened Adam's and Eve's eyes to the difference of the other, a difference that compelled touch, exploration, response, and gasps of delight. As her story comes to an end and we enter into the world east of Eden that we all know, let Eve remind us that in the pursuit of wisdom, we will make mistakes, but be brave enough to own them rather than to deflect onto others. But after mistakes, after missteps and accidents, there will always be a cause to celebrate life. Let us honor Eve's courage by creating room to hear her voice in the daughters of Eve, creating space for them to share the wisdom of their own stories. In this way, we will actively trust in the hope of God who saw liberation in her descendants, those who will crush the head of the serpent. I wanna leave you with a blessing from the Great Mother. We lift you up so your soul can be seen by Mother Mercy. She who checks doorways, sees through cracks and into corners where souls often hide seeking refuge. We lift you up so blessed Mother can see all that you need now in order to bring goodness and contentment, healing and health, understanding and love to you and your beloveds in every possible way. We lift you up because you were knitted up in your earthly mother's womb by one greater, not only born already blessed, but born as a blessing on us all. Do not forget this, for we have not forgotten you, and neither and never has your great mother. Let you walk now forward into this day both deeply blessed and blessing others with the magnitude of our Holy Mother's love.